you're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast, and I'm your host, Isaiah Bridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Uh, today's show, I'm going to be continuing the series I'm doing on covenant theology, and I'll be playing an interview I did with my friend Derek Vester, who is a Reformed Baptist, and he's going to be representing the cradle Baptist position, and we're going to be talking about the arguments and framework that was put forth by my friend Tyler. So before I play that, though, uh, I want to address one quick thing. If, if you ever listen to the intro uh, of my podcast, the first episode I did, I mentioned that the title of the show depends on how you look at it. I'm not saying, nor I don't believe at all, that we can just take the Bible and say, oh, whatever opinion works, you know, it just depends on how you look at every single thing. That's, that's not the purpose of the show. I think there are things that are spelled out so clearly in Scripture that it is wrong and heretical to deny it. Uh, but we talk about orthodox things and the framework of those orthodox things and the differing perspectives that have uh, developed over the centuries and things of that sort. So I never wanted to be misunderstood that I am just this uh, liberal that wants to cut the Bible apart and make it fit how I want in certain sections. So that's not the purpose of this show. I'm... I'm you know, I, I consider myself basically Reformed, and that is the hermeneutic I use in uh, most of the doctrines I believe, and especially with, you know, Calvinism and things of that sort and my eschatology. And really, I started this show because of my love of eschatology. Uh, the Depends on How You Look at It thing came from my lectures and discussions I've had with other people about eschatology, because I think it is one of those topics that really depends on how you look at it on that, um, for sure. Most of my episodes incorporate eschatology, or they are about a specific uh, topic within eschatology. I've done things on the book of Daniel and Matthew 24, and I plan to keep doing many episodes about eschatology because that is the driving force of the name of this show. And finally, before I play the interview with Derek, I just want to thank him so much for coming on the show and his time and his knowledge. We had a great, great discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. And I want to shout out to my friend Tyler, who was on the previous episode of the show. None of these arguments are directed at you personally. We are dealing with the position you laid out. Uh, you are my brother, and I, I am so looking forward to having you back on the show to keep uh, this discussion going. I think you're a wonderful representative of it. And Derek and I both agreed beforehand that uh, we love you, dude. So I just wanted you to know that personally for me in the monologue before I play the interview that this is this is just a bunch of geeks talking theology. So anyway, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I'm so excited to have my friend Derek Vester on the podcast. We've known each other for, I think, a few months now. We've talked back and forth, and we had a good two-hour phone conversation the other night, and we really just hit it off. But the reason I'm having uh, Derek on is we're going to talk about Baptist Covenant theology. Uh, but before we get into that, Derek, how about you introduce yourself? Tell me about your life and experience as a Christian and you know, married with kids. What's going on? Yeah, uh, thanks, Isaiah. My name is uh, Derek Vester. Uh, I live in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, we're a little uh, southwest of Indianapolis. I'm married to a wonderful, godly wife, Amanda. Uh, we have a two-year-old daughter whose name is Poppy. Uh, I'm a member of Riley Bible Church here in Terre Haute. It came out of Riley. That's the name. Um, but uh, I'm not a pastor. I am a theology enthusiast. I particularly love talking about covenant theology. I love talking about the Trinity. I just, I really enjoy um, sharpening iron with other brothers, 
I enjoy reading. Uh, growing up, I knew many false views of the Lord uh, prior to him saving me. I grew up in a Willow Creek church setting, uh, so sort of Andy Stanley, Bill Hybels, uh, that, that crowd, where mm. I went to youth group functions often. That was pretty much it. It was kind of a you know hang out with friends sort of thing for me. I was introduced to Oneness Pentecostalism at the age of 18, and I attended Yikes. many different— Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I attended several UPCI churches, actually, over the next few years as I moved a little bit. Uh, I went from that, got really into dispensational eschatology, especially. So listening to Tyler talk about, you know, Tim LaHaye is his homeboy. I I, I feel him there. Uh, that, that Same here. Hal Lindsey, listened to his report, read his books, um, that kind of stuff. Paul Crouch, those guys. And after that, I, I eventually I was shown the true gospel through a series of providential events. And uh, th- then after I uh, I came to the Reformed faith, uh, uh, and I've known, I'd say about 2008, 2009 probably, was when some random person told me about this guy named James White. And I started uh, reading uh, stuff in that camp, and then I wanted to know who they learned from. So I started reading some of the old dead guys. Eventually made it into a yeah made it into a Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, so RPCNA, uh, prior to our adoption of Poppy, and uh, obvious for obvious reasons we had to leave the RPCNA uh, when we were adopting a, a, a child uh, that uh, we were not going to baptize, and so uh, we've been at Riley Bible ever since. Uh, ever since, very appreciative of uh, of Riley and very appreciative of our RPCNA and my Presbyterian and Reformed brothers. So this is definitely. Uh, Something I love talking about. I still hang out with my friends from the RP church often. I attend their Bible study every chance I get, and uh, they're very gracious and allowing us to still have a very uh, close, intimate friendship and fellowship with them. Okay. Well, that is an awesome background. And, you know, uh, speaking to the listeners now, one thing Derek and I have in common is James White. We, we are both We both agreed that Dr. James White is one of the most influential, if not the most influential, uh, modern theologian on, on us today. And I think James White has a wonderful ministry. He gets a little older and gripier every year, but I still love him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about what James White has been defending for, I think, 30 years or maybe even 40 years now. Who knows? So on the last episode, I had a discussion with my dear friend Tyler Jackson. And he is a paedo-baptist. That means he believes in the covenant children and he baptizes infants as long as obviously the infant is the uh, child of one believing parent. And Tyler came on and laid out his case for his view of covenant theology, the the Presbyterian form of covenant theology. So I want to be clear that Derek and I have totally agreed beforehand that none of what we talk about is directed at Tyler. It's really we're just going to be interacting with the framework that he laid out. And uh, if we're pointing out inconsistencies, we're not we're not shooting at Tyler. We're we're only shooting at the the position that was laid out, and that's how we have agreed to go about this. So uh, Tyler is my dear brother, and I expect to have him back on the show very soon to clarify and and keep going through this with me because I do love this subject. But this episode, we're going to be looking to understand the framework of a Reformed Baptist, and what I've understood is I don't think it's quite monolithic. But I think there is a basic understanding, and I think Derek is a really good representation of that. 
So to be fair to Tyler, we're going to be discussing the same text as the previous episode. So there's no need for Derek to lay out covenant theology framework as detailed as Tyler did, because we all agree about Adam and the, the, the covenant of works and what he was told to do and not to do and how Christ fulfills all these things. But it seems that the Reformed Baptist position has a different view of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. So I'd like to start there. Derek, can you explain to me how the Reformed Baptist looks at the covenant of grace and how an Old Testament saint was saved via Christ's work on the cross? Sure, no problem. Uh, I do appreciate that you said it's not a monolithic view. It, it definitely is not. There were differences of opinion in the 17th century between, uh, between particular Baptist uh, groups. Uh, there are differences of opinion between uh, Westminster Federalists and other uh, Reformed uh, Pado-Baptists. So I, I would say because I'm not I'm not someone who's written on this. There are I am I'm standing on the shoulder of giants, both dead and alive. And so I, I, if, if it's okay with you, Isaiah, I, I would recommend if someone wants to look into this for their for themselves and not have to take my word on sort of what Reformed Baptists think. Um, I do hold to a position that's kind of commonly referred to as 1689 federalism. Uh, if you go to 1689federalism.com, there's a reading list. And the cool thing about that is you can go and, and it's ordered. Brandon Adams has ordered the reading list. So you can start with, uh, you know, A.W. Pink's uh, Divine Covenants and just start working your way through the reading list. Uh, Sam Renahan has written a recent book um, that is just simply wonderful. If you, he, he has a website at pettyfrance.wordpress.com and Brandon has a website, contrasttheNumber2.wordpress.com. I would just say uh, anything I say, um, I, I'm, if there's something wrong, it's in me. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be corrected if I uh, misrepresent anything um, or mostly if I misrepresent scripture. So so anyway, uh, having said all of that, um, what we would say about the covenant of grace is that uh, since the new covenant alone, uh, according to scripture, brings the elect forgiveness of sins, uh, the new covenant would be the covenant of grace. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. So Old Testament saints were saved retroactively by Christ's shed blood. So you might ask the question, uh, if Christ didn't shed his blood in time um, until uh, you know, the, the, the time of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right, when they're writing about the Gospels, uh, they're, you know, 30, 33 AD, how were the Old Testament saints covered, right? How were their sins atoned for? So those saved after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are also saved by the same shed blood of Christ. This is retroactive. The benefits are given to the Old Testament saints, though the historical event has not yet taken place. And so what we would say is that as the new covenant alone is the covenant of grace, all other post-fall covenants, think of the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, they are not the covenant of grace. Rather, they are subservient to the covenant of grace. They actually serve the purpose, um, the purposes of the covenant of grace. Uh, I want to be brief, but I, I would just, uh, I, I don't want to build on what Tyler said either. I think Tyler did a wonderful job, especially on the covenant of works. But how, how this would be different, Tyler had mentioned, um, and if I misrepresent Tyler, uh, I, I hope he would let me know, but it sounded like he was holding a position where there's only two, uh, truly two covenants uh, in the Bible. There's a covenant of works and then there's the, there's the covenant of grace. Well, many Reformed Presbyterian or Reformed Pado baptists in the 16th and 17th century centuries didn't even agree with that. They held to a third uh, view, which would be a subservient covenant view. And this is represented by several men, um, and uh, 
you can, I can provide source material, but actually one of the books is on the reading list from 69 Federalism. But the Noahic Covenant uh, preserves the platform, right? So what does the Noahic Covenant do? It preserves the platform by which the history of salvation can occur. It does not offer forgiveness of sins, but it assures that the covenant which does can be uh, uh, can be ratified in time. So no earth, no place for Christ to come and die. The Abrahamic covenant, for instance, uh, this is uh, often called the hinge, right, uh, uh, of the disagreement between particular Baptist and uh, uh, covenantal paedo-baptists. The Abrahamic covenant promised certain things, right? We, we, we don't have to guess at what the Abrahamic covenant promised. It promised a people, promised a nation, a land, and ultimately it promised a seed that would bless all nations. We all agree on this. That seed is Christ. So what we would say is that this covenant served the purposes of the covenant of grace in history, but was not itself the covenant of grace, because the covenant of grace is the new covenant, according to the 69 Federalist view, because the new covenant alone forgives sins. The Abrahamic covenant promised many things, but it did not promise that. It promised the one that would do that, that would bring forgiveness of sins. And then so briefly, the Mosaic Covenant, I, we would see that as an addendum to the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, it, it further elaborated on the terms upon which Abraham's offspring would receive and retain the promised land and its blessings. Now, the Mosaic Covenant that, that typologically was pointing to the obedience of Christ in that. We see that in Galatians 3. But the Mosaic Covenant was not the covenant of grace, but it did serve the purposes of the covenant of grace. All of the promises of Abraham— you know, the the people, the nation, the land, the, those things receive their fulfillment um, in the Mosaic Covenant. So the Abrahamic Covenant promised those things, but the Mosaic Covenant was the realization. So we see that as an addendum to the Abrahamic Covenant. And so often Reformed Pado baptists will say Abraham was not Moses. And while that's true, uh, the Abrahamic Covenant does serve as the basis and foundation for the Mosaic Covenant. And then finally, the Davidic covenant, just to be brief, God promises several things in this. He promises to set David's offspring on David's throne. He promises to establish his throne forever. Uh, he promised that his offspring would build a house for God to dwell in, uh, that he would be his offspring's father, and that his mercy would not depart from that offspring in spite of his sin. So through all of these covenants, the promises are narrowed from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, down through the tribe of Judah, and now through the line of David. So thus, like the others, the Davidic covenant, though not the covenant of grace, served the purposes of the covenant of grace. And just a, a very two-sentence summary, uh, although the promises of the gospel, hear this clearly, because this gets to the heart, I think, of the question. Um, although the promises of the gospel are in all the post-fall covenants, the new covenant alone is formally established on the promise, I will remember their sins no more. So all the post-fall covenants serve the covenant of grace in the history of salvation, but they are not themselves the covenant of grace. Right. So where where I've been challenged by um, my Pado-Baptist friends and really just Tyler is how can how can someone say they were forgiven in the old 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 uh, testament? If they weren't, if if this was not some sort of administration of the covenant of grace, how was how was Abraham justified if Christ Himself didn't justify him? Yeah, so so much of that depends on what is meant by administered. Um, one of the things that I think is often misrepresented in uh, uh, 69 Federalism or Reformed Baptist Covenant theology is that uh, our confession states, you know, in, in uh, 
uh, chapter eight, I think it's paragraph six, uh, that the benefits was the benefit um, uh, was communicated to the elect in all ages. And how is it communicated? It's communicated by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he, being Christ, was revealed. And so if you look at typology, we see in, in Hebrews that Abraham, for instance, he looked beyond Canaan. Now, there's not a whole lot in the Old Testament text that indicates this. There's not, there's not a lot that basically tells us what the Hebrew author is bringing out, but we recognize through typology that these, that these Old Testament saints, through the very sacrifices of the Old Covenant, were, were having the benefits of the New Covenant, the benefits of Christ, union with Christ, regeneration, forgiveness of sins. Those benefits were communicated th- to them through typology. And I think that that is, it, it, that is an old thing. That's not a new thing. That's a 17th century thing. And it's also not exclusive to uh, particular Baptist theology. Okay. If, yeah. But if by administered, you mean administered in the sense that it was administered to the elect and the non-elect, that's where we would say no. We would say something like uh, Abraham, or, or take someone in the Mosaic Covenant. You could be in the Mosaic Covenant rightly and not have union with Christ. But you right. can't have the admin, you can't have the benefits of the new covenant administered to you without union with Christ. And so we would say that uh, Ahab did not enjoy the benefits of regeneration, the benefits of having his sins forgiven. He, that, he didn't have that. Yet he was in the old covenant. Right. And and uh, to speak to the Hebrews point, it's it's quite interesting that the the author of Hebrews talks about you know Abraham believing that Isaac would be raised if he was sacrificed right. and that that Abraham had this you know faith beyond faith of what he was seeing at the moment kind of thing so I, I think you're right and I think Galatians is clear and we're going to get into this more as the discussion goes on but I think Galatians is clear that the covenant <clears throat> the the union with Christ and the benefits of the new covenant were always to be with the promised seed and the the spiritual sons of Abraham do I understand that correctly uh, yes. So that was what I that was sort of what I meant by the administration issue. I, I think one thing that needs to be made clear is that for us and for 17th century Baptists, the old covenants were a means used by God by which the elect of God, they could receive the salvific benefits of the covenant yet to be ratified, that being the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And so this is what many of them meant. They used the same term administration. They weren't using administration as an organizational term, as is often done in uh, 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 paedo-baptist circles, reform circles especially. They were pointing out simply that the benefits of the covenant of grace were dispensed through the typological subservience. And what I mean by that is the types were pointing to something better. Through the typological service, the elect received the retroactive benefits of the new covenant. And I think that's the that's the that's the thing to really get. The spiritual and natural seeds of Abraham were intermingled in the old covenant. And so the difference between them would be faith. Right. So the old covenant made salvation known through types. But we have to remember that the types are not antitypes and the shadows are not substance. And so so anyways, that's what I wanted to that, that was why I brought up the idea of administration. What what is meant by administration? Right, because I guess the the issue I have with. Paedo-Baptist covenant theology is they make it sound like, and this is just my opinion, it feels like the new covenant isn't special at all in the New Testament. And it feels like, well, and this is my words, not anyone, you know, no Paedo-Baptist would say this, but it feels recycled 
you know, like it just is like, well, here's this now. It's just a, it's just a better administration. No, it feels like this is a brand new thing. There's there's something really good about this. That's why they wrote so extensively about it. Oh, I think you're onto something there um, in that. So my pastor at the RPCNA, uh, love, love him, wonderful person. One thing he pointed out to me is that new is uh, in the New Testament is sometimes used uh, as fresh. And he got this analogy, I believe, from John Murray. I think it was John Murray. I could be incorrect. But he talked about how, you know, you can have a knife that gets sharpened. And so it's fresh in that it's the same knife, you know, substantially, but it has a finer point to it. And he used the the idea that that's one of the translations of you don't put uh, new wine into old wineskins. You put them into fresh wineskins. And that's the same word for new and uh, new covenant. And so I don't I don't think you're wrong in saying uh, recycled. I think w- w- that's the whole idea of one substance, various administrations, uh, one covenant, right? One covenant, various administrations. And so so I don't I mean, I don't I, I definitely don't think they would want to put it that way. But no, the new, co- the new covenant. <laughs> Is the same. I mean, the new co- the Abrahamic covenant is not a different covenant from the uh, covenant of grace, nor is the new covenant a different covenant from the covenant of grace. And so, I I, w- I don't know. Uh, my my pastor did not shy from what you said. He he would point out that fresh new doesn't mean brand new. New means fresh. So, okay. So, I, I guess when I'm are you are you are you trying to. I guess I'm lost. Are you agreeing with me that it feels recycled, or are you are you trying to like defend the Pato Baptist position? I, I, no, I guess no, I feel- I'm no, I'm saying they shouldn't. I don't think that all of them would shy away from uh, the language. I don't know that they would say recycled, but when he gives the knife analogy, he, he is saying essentially what you're saying, in that it's the exact same knife, it just has a different edge. It's, right. it's sharpened. It's fresh. And and that's and that's I have a problem with it. That's I have a problem with it. That's what I okay. I was trying to make sure that it feels. I guess I'm just stuck in the New Testament's definition of the new covenant, or, or even honestly Jeremiah's in Ezekiel's definition of it. It feels different, you know. Um, but you know, we've I, I talked till I was blue in the face uh, last time to Tyler about that, and he just kept assuring me that, look, man, it's the substance was always Christ. This is just how you know the better administration. So. At this point in the podcast, I would like to transition to the text that I discussed with Tyler and work through them from, let me pronounce this right, is it credo-baptist or credo-baptist? I, I pronounce it credo-baptist, but some might pronounce it, I mean, I, I think I've heard the credo podcast, uh, so obviously some people may say credo. I say credo, so. <laughs> okay, I also say credo because I always say my pedo brothers and my credo brothers, so uh, I'm <laughs> going like to— so we're going to work through these texts and hear from the credo-baptist perspective. Now, I, I ought to be honest with my listeners. I'm trying to be objective here. I'm trying to listen to both sides of this debate. But I got to be honest with you and say my presuppositions are inherently credo-baptist. That is, I believe baptism is only for those who have professed faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That is my working presupposition. When I say I want to be objective is I go to a Presbyterian church, and to be to be fair, I would really just love to believe exactly how they believe covenant theology works. I mean I, be, I'm, I beg Tyler to, to, to please make this work for me, <laughs> but to be fair to the podcast, I got to get both sides of the debate because the podcast is depends on how you look at it. So I'm going to summarize what I've understood from Tyler to be saying about the text, and then I will ask Derek to explain his understanding of the text. And we're going to start with Acts 2.38. 
this is a very powerful passage. It's it's hopefully on your hearts, but there's a lot in there. Uh, and Peter said to them, oh, I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this uh, crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So in essence, Tyler and I talked extensively about this. We could have taken up the whole podcast, but Tyler says that the promise clearly is the Holy Spirit, that this is, this is a, a sign and seal of the Spirit working but that it should be given to you and your children, as in children of believers, that this is a covenant idea, that the Jewish people would have totally understood that the covenant formula, the admin, uh, not the administration, the, the covenant pattern had not changed, that it was for you and your household. So Tyler would say we baptize our infants because the promise is for you and your children. But when I pushed back and said, well, is it fair for me to say then that the eight-day-old infant that you baptized now it has the Holy Spirit, and he said, "Well, no, because we don't know what's going to happen in you know eternity." And so we kind of went back and forth on, well, how can you say this is a promise and then say a child baptized of a believer doesn't have the promise that the promise is for? I don't, I don't get it. And I, as far as I understood, he looked at it as the way we look at compatibilism and preaching the gospel and not knowing the elect. You know, the Bible clearly says to preach the gospel to every living creature, and God will work regeneration in the elect, but that's not for us to know. We're just to do our job, preach the gospel. How are they here if we don't preach? But the problem I had with that argument is that's incredibly clear. God never promised to save the world. He promised to save a people. So it's perfectly consistent for us to preach to all people, knowing that a peculiar people will emerge out of the whole world. I don't think you can use that logic on Acts 2.38 because it says the promise from God is to you and your children. Now, I don't believe Tyler thinks God is a liar. I know he doesn't. But I, if I feel like if I accept this position, I have to kind of say that. So that's all I'm going to say for now. Derek, how do you understand Acts 2.38? Where would you go with this? Yeah, well, I, I would I, – let me piggyback a little bit um, and maybe blend uh, some of my uh, critique with that with, with what I think the text is saying is often Paedobaptists will say something like if the child of a Christian is given the promised Holy Spirit, which I agree that's what the promise is, then it's a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness. And I've, I've definitely heard, th- heard this, right, when a, when, when a child uh, 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 starts getting the Lord's Supper – Right. When 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 they're recognized as uh, as members of the church in, in a way unique to uh, the way they were before. But but this must mean the inverse is true as well. Think about it. If the child of a Christian is not given the promised Holy Spirit. It is a testimony of God's covenant unfaithfulness. And so I don't think mm-hmm. that sounds right. And I, and I would I obviously I don't believe that that's how it would be said. But I do think this shows an inconsistency in what is seemingly being argued here. Do the children have to repent and believe to receive the promised Holy Spirit? 
I would say, well, sure. I mean, no one is going to believe that the Holy Spirit has been given to someone um, sort of like you wouldn't baptize an unbelieving spouse. You wouldn't baptize a 15 year old unbeliever, uh, those things. So if they you would call them to repentance and faith, we all agree here. How is that different from the children of non-believing parents? I would say it's not. Physical descent is irrelevant, irrelevant when you get right down to it, uh, when it comes to whom God gives the promised spirit. This is the consistent testimony of the New Testament, I believe. Paul assures the men at Pentecost, for instance, that the uh, foolhardy plea by the Jewish people at Christ's crucifixion just wouldn't stand. They cried out, remember, uh, his blood be on us and on our children. Mm-hmm. Paul says the promised Holy Spirit would be for you and your children, but then as well as for those who are far off. And I think that this is the key to everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I believe that is the controlling factor of this phrase. This is election and it is not done on the basis of bloodline. And uh, I don't know if you if you'd permit me, I, I don't plan on quoting a lot of people here, but I do think there's a there's a Pato Baptist that that wrote a quote that I'm very grateful for. He actually wrote a whole uh, I, I don't remember if it was an entire I don't this might have been put into a book form, um, but his name's E. Calvin Beisner. Um, and if you look at uh, he, this is what he says, this is his, his quote here when he mentions looking at verse 38, uh, he says, I'm going to use my own very literal translation here to make clear the grammatical cause and effect relationship that is clear in the Greek, but ordinarily gets obscured in English translations. This is his translation. Y'all repent for the remission of y'all sins and let <laughs> each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and y'all will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says. The promise is conditional. If you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be forgiven. That promise does indeed apply to each and every child of each and every believer. And it also applies to each and every other person who ever lived or ever will live, end quote. So I very much appreciate Weisner rightly going against the Pato stream here. This text, in my opinion, just doesn't support the Pato argument. I agree. And, you know, to quote James White is it seems the controlling phrase is everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh, Peter is very clear in his other. uh, This isn't a letter by Peter. This is a sermon by Peter. But in his letters, Peter talks about making your calling an election. Sure. Uh, Peter believed in election, don't you think? (laughs) I think so. I think so. (laughs) Well, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I I would – even if I became a Pado Baptist, I'm not sure I could use Acts 2:38 for my position. I just don't. Again, I, I love my Pado Baptist brothers, but I just don't think it's a consistent way to read it. Um, but I think they have better arguments, and we're going to get to some of those. Sure. So now let's get to the household principle. Uh, if there's one thing that my good buddy talked about a lot is that God works through families and He works through households, and I don't completely disagree with that. I think the household is a wonderful place for the gospel to be uh, preached and and taught to your children, and you can cultivate wonderful Christians and Christianity and churches through that means. But I'm not convinced that household in Acts and Corinthians means baptizing infants. So let's go to 1 Corinthians, and uh, the specific verse is 1 Corinthians 1. 14. And this is Paul talking about how he's baptized some people, but he uses some interesting uh, phrases. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also 
the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what I understood from uh, Tyler was twofold. He says it's interesting that Paul talks about Crispus and Gaius alone as maybe functioning as the head of their households. And that he also talks about the household of Stephanus and that that is just the normative pattern of baptism. And while Tyler isn't – he, we both agreed it has nothing to do with infants here. He's not saying there were infants in the household. Tyler would say there definitely could have been and there would have been no issue. They would have been baptized. So how do you understand households in light of Acts and, and this in First Corinthians? If we look at the household baptisms, I think that – Often what happens is when a, a pedo baptist points out the household principle, I think to someone that looks at the whole forest, they, they might be tempted to look at that and go, wow, it does. It looks like a principle is being established here. And then the argument is then pointed you, – you go to the Old Testament and you go, well, look, they dealt with households there as well. But I think the problem is is that when you start looking at the cases – and then you put that you input that into the computer with all the other data that we have. I don't think the household argument is near as strong as it's presented. Let me let me tell you why. I, so Cornelius's household, for instance, it doesn't do much for the Pado Baptist's argument. Let's imagine it stood by itself. Um, his household received the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right. That doesn't do right. a whole lot for the infant Baptist argument. Um, nothing definitive is said if you look at Lydia's household in Acts 16. But when you look at some of the background information, um, if she had an infant, it, it, would, it would seem culturally strange, possibly. But that's speaking from silence. So if you just take Lydia's example, I don't think you have much there. The Philippian jailer incident is interesting. And that you have to admit at the very least, at the very least, his entire family rejoiced at his salvation. Now, I'm not I, I don't remember uh, where in the Bible it says anything about unbelievers rejoicing when someone comes to know the Lord. Yeah. And um, so, I, I again, I don't think that would do a whole lot for it. Um, they all also had the word spoken to them. So I'm not sure that uh, if you just look at the individual tree here. Right. Looking at the forest tree analogy. I'm not sure this is um, this is supporting the case. Um Crispus too, I, I, definitely. I, I don't see how that supports it. He believed together with his entire household. And so I would say the moral of the story of Crispus is that we should baptize believers. And yeah. if everyone in the house believes, then amen, baptize the whole house. And then so you, you brought up 1 Corinthians 1. So taking all that into account, we see Crispus, Gaius, and Stephanus. If Crispus is the same as just discussed, I don't think it supports infant baptism. It might support the idea that when you speak of a believer – uh, believers' families, you know, you look to the husband, the father, right? But that that's consistent with Baptist and Pado-Baptist. It really doesn't have anything to do with the Baptist argument um, to to say that. Well, he just mentions Crispus. Um, I, I I know that when we meet at Riley Bible, we're a Baptist church, right? And often I will be the only one that speaks for my family's decision about something. Uh, that doesn't mean that my individual family members um, don't – we didn't talk about it, right, or something like that. So I would see the same – that maybe this might have some headhold principle or a head of household principle, but I'm not sure that it supports infant baptism. We don't know anything about Gaius um, as far as baptism or anything like that. It's a mystery. Stephanus, let's say it's the same Stephanus as chapter 16, 15, as you guys mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, well, his household was the first conver converts in Achaia or Achaia, however you say that. 
So I say baptize converts. Good, right? Um, and then as to the question of if Paul meant, I think I remember Tyler bringing up, I didn't baptize any others referring to people or households. I think right. it's irrelevant personally, as this is certainly not enough to hang your hat on to prove infant baptism. Um, yeah. So if you go through these one by one, I don't think we see a convincing case for infant baptism. We actually see evidence of believers only baptism a couple of times, which I don't think helps the case at all. Um, but what will often happen again is that if they say, if you look at all these household principles, there's something here, but if you do what we just did, what I just did, I guess I shouldn't say we, excuse me. If you do what I just did, I don't think it's convincing. No. And, and brother, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I had to be honest with the audience and say, I am coming into this presuppositionally as a credo Baptist. I just can't help it. And it would be lying if I'm sitting here going, well, you know, I thought this was really convincing. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what is uh, – I'll wait till later to get to get what I what I think is convincing. Um, now, he had me stumped a little bit on the uh, next verse we're going to get into, but I didn't want to spend the entire episode on it. Tyler was pressed for time, so I, I do want to have him back on to clarify some of these things. So this is not the end of this conversation. This is not, a, oh, we had Tyler on, and now we're going to shoot everything down that he said. No, I'm going to have Tyler back on to clarify and keep talking about covenant theology because I love this. But we got into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is dealing with divorce and remarriage and relationships in the church and unbelievers and believers and widows and virgins and all sorts of things. But all of a sudden, apparently there's a case for covenant household uh, in uh, chapter 7, verse 13. So Paul says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, on the surface, because I, I was not very familiar with this text um, in in a Pado baptist context or, or really even a, a, a credo-baptist context, I just had, I had a completely different view of this text that really isn't relevant to either position. But what I understood of Tyler is he was saying this is clearly showing us that if if in a marriage, if somebody, if, if the doesn't matter, man or woman is a believer and they have an unbelieving spouse, that spouse is made holy uh, through that covenant relationship with God. And that child is uh, is holy because they are born from a believer. And when I, I challenged Tyler and I said, OK, fair enough is the unbelieving spouse to be baptized? And he said, no. And I said, why not? And he basically said, well, because they're they're unbelieving. And I said, but they're holy. And so Tyler kind of staked his case on, okay, they are made holy, but they are made holy, but the child is holy. And at one point, he even said the child is intrinsically holy. Now, I didn't really jump on this and because I, I didn't really have the time nor, nor a good argument to come back with it at the time. But if that's what's going on, I don't understand if both the child and the unbelieving spouse are holy in some sense. Why are they not to be both baptized and both a part of the covenant? That was my argument, and it just kind of went back and forth from there. But uh, Derek, you don't have a, a – a view of this that is talking about um, baptism or thing, anything like that, you see this as 
possibly the legitimacy of the child. So I, I'm really curious to understand what's going on here from your perspective. Uh, well, so this is where I would actually say that um, I, I, this this text always shocks me, um, considering how careful uh, most Reformed people are at seeing the New Testament relation to the Old Testament. So Tyler mentioned uh, talking to uh, Mark Jones, I believe, and he talked about just reading the Bible from left to right, or maybe it was uh, Pastor Shishko. Um, right. But uh, but reading the reading it uh, left to right, and and I agree that you should read it left to right. I think you should also read it right to left and that the context of any text is every other text. Um, but I, I would say that um, Israelites, we have to remember, we're not allowed to take wives from other nations, right? So the background of this text is Ezra 9, 10, 9, 9 through 10. Um, it explains a situation, just to remind everyone, broad, broad strokes here, uh, in which many Israelites had taken foreign wives and then they had children with them. And so in Ezra 10:14 it says that the fierce wrath of God was upon them for this break of the covenant. The break of the covenant. They were called to repent and they did just that. They repented. And so it, it, for anyone listening to this if you look at Ezra 10:3 it says therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law, according to the law. <laughs> so mm. Paul explains that the situation here in 1 Corinthians is very different for Christians. That's interesting if you consider uh, the covenantal uh, 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 beliefs. But anyway, that, that aside, they do not have to put away their spouse and their children because both are sanctified, which simply meets, means set apart for use by the Christian. Look at how they're sanctified, right? So uh, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, right? And so it is that, uh, that, that connection to the wife that makes the unbelieving uh, husband holy um, or, or sanctified. It makes him, right? So this is at its heart a, a covenantal issue. Christians are not under this old covenant obligation to receive covenantal blessings in their land. That was an old covenant thing. Given the very different nature, I would say, between the old covenant and the new covenant in this regard, it would be quite mistaken to appeal to the old covenant to explain how the unbeliever and the children are holy. And then, and then notice this, in the old covenant, they were not. They put them away. So I think it, one thing I would really point out, especially when, uh, when a paedo-baptist says this is a super clear text, I find it interesting. There was a guy named Abraham Booth. And in 18, uh, he wrote this in 1829. He, he took the time and he compiled quotes from 18 Pado baptists affirming the exact same interpretation I just gave you. Uh, Chrysostom, if you look back in the fourth century, affirmed this view. And so I, I think a pretty significant issue that was brought up by you um, in the podcast uh, with Tyler is that the unbelieving spouse, spouse is said to be sanctified. And, and I think there was some equivocating on what that meant. But if we take this term in the sense of co covenantal membership, right, uh, covenant of grace, new covenant membership, as he did with the child, uh, then how do we harmonize? He actually did that with the unbelieving spouse, too, uh, where he affirmed if they're coming to the church and things like that. Right. I would let him clarify that view if he spoke, uh, misspoke on that. But I, I wonder, how do we harmonize this with a text like Hebrews 10.10 or 10.14, where we see that we are sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, and that by a single offering, he is perfected for all time then that are being sanctified. Now, I very much doubt um, that Pado baptists think this of an unbeliever, and so I think this view must be rejected. 
And then that just leaves the child. One would have to hold a very inconsistent view, uh, which I lovingly think that Tyler did, uh, to say that this child is covenantally holy while the spouse is in some other way made holy non-covenantally. And so what I would just simply say is drop either view um, and hold to the right view. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, no, you're good. I guess I guess what I don't understand, and and perhaps it just went over my head, mm-hmm. if that's what's going on then, how is it – what is going on in this household? How are they sanctified? What does that mean for the – is this just being exposed to the gospel itself or what? No, I don't think sanctification. See, I think we, I think we're making a word concept fallacy here. Where okay. uh, if you say wisdom is justified by her children, <laughs> does that mean that wisdom are justified in Christ by the kids they have? No. <laughs> but just because we see the term sanctified, right, uh, or we see uh, uh, holy or something like that, it simply means set apart. We often assume, as as Tyler does, that this means set apart for use by God in the covenant of grace or something like that. And there's so much baggage imported. First Corinthians seven is not talking about that. I don't. I don't believe. I don't believe it's saying anything like that. And other Pado Baptists have no problem with this term not meaning that either. I don't believe that sanctified is being term used here in the same way it's being used in Hebrews 10. If it is, we have a very big problem. Um, and I think that if you think about the way that uh, Paul is often contrasted with James, and they'll say, well, look, they're both saying the same thing here. If That only happens, I think, when you see justified as always meaning justified before God. If that's right. what it always has to mean, even if it doesn't say that, if that word simply means that, then fine. But I don't believe um, that uh, Hagiazo, I don't believe that that's what that means here. I don't believe it's talking about sanctified before God and the covenant of grace. Well, yeah, and I, I feel, and I, everyone's done this, but we sometimes we treat the Bible completely opposite to how we would teach any other communicating source. You know, we don't, when our friends say, a pair of shoes and uh, eating a pear, we don't think they're eating a pair of shoes or something stupid like that. But we know words can have be the same words but have completely different context and meaning, and the Bible works the same way. That's why we do this thing called exegesis. Um, but I, I, I had a, a crude example of what I, what I was understanding Tyler to, to say, and I, I told you this on our phone conversation, and I'm happy to say it on the podcast. It feels like when you when you reduce this this text to to what he's saying, it feels like well, the child is holy and, and the child is a covenant child, but the unbelieving spouse is just a baby making machine for the covenant. I mean that's that's kind of yeah. all I feel like is going on, and I'm like that that seems really out of place for what Paul's talking about here. But you know maybe it's me. Well, well also I, I would, but one one other thing if that's the if that's the case, then why wasn't that the case in Ezra? Why were those kids unclean? It was the child of one believing parent because you have believers putting away their unbelieving wives, but they're also putting away the children. And so and the, so I the children were considered it. unclean, even though there was a covenant faithful uh, uh, parent. Correct. Yes, I think there is uh, a okay. very big inconsistency here um, that I think that when you, if you have a if you read a Pado Baptist commentary on Ezra nine and ten, it's going to be awesome. I'm pretty sure what they're going to recognize is that they broke covenant with God. But the question is, which covenant? Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to let that one lie for now. And, and if Tyler wants to come back and respond and, and 
that'll be great. Maybe I can have both of you on at the same time if you'll be nice to each other. But I, I think it would be really fun to have a f- facilitated discussion um, sometime about this. But I want I want both sides to lay out their views very clearly so the so the listeners can really understand the heart of the matter, just like the song by Don Henley. Now, anyway, uh, it's time to talk about the heart of the matter. And truly, you and I have been talking about the new covenant. It all comes down to how you view the new covenant. What's the new covenant? Is it just an administration of something that already took place in uh, in the garden? Or is it the, the fulfillment of all the other covenants and what they were leading to? So I'm going to read Jeremiah 31's new covenant, and we're going to uh, – Discuss it, and I will try to sum up what I've understood from Tyler. All right, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now we have this repeated in, in, in Hebrews when, when the author of Hebrews is, is really trying to hammer away at the sufficiency and how much better the new covenant is in all its aspects. Now, what I've understood from Tyler is that they still see the people of God as a mixed community of elect and not elect. You see, the the argument that did get me, and I really don't have a response for, is he said, Isaiah, I'm still a pastor, and we're still teaching people to know the Lord. But if all know the Lord, then that's That's silly, right? So therefore, the new covenant uh, finds its full consummation in the return of Christ, what I've understood from Tyler, that these these aspects in Jeremiah and all that, that's going to be the final state of it, but we're still in the wilderness. We're still in the transition. So how does the Reformed Baptist understand the new covenant and its better promises, and how would you understand knowing the Lord and from the least to the greatest and, and, and things of that sort? So I'll take that in reverse order, but I would also okay. point out that this is not just a difference of opinion between a particular Baptist and a Reformed Presbyterian. Um, there are differences of opinion within even the um, the Pado Baptist camp on that. Not all make that argument, but I have heard a very uh, it's a very common argument. Um, but I would point so they shall all know me. I'll, so I'll take the rever- the way you asked it in reverse because I think it answers the pastors and teachers question. Okay. Uh, but if, if we understand uh, that this text is given to indicate the superiority of one covenant to another, which I think we, we should from the context, no one in this debate would deny that the new covenant has arrived, right? Ministers of the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant, those, those type of things. So to say that these promises, which what do they do? They show the superiority to the old covenant, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. To say, though— uh, that these promises are waiting for a future fulfillment is, I believe, to undercut the Hebrew author's use of it. Hebrews is written to people that seem tempted to go back, right? To go back so that they have um, um, uh, to go back to the old covenant, to go back to the sacrifices, to go back 
uh, to all of those things. And so to have the author use an argument that points to a yet to be realized aspect at the most appealing point seems very problematic to me. In the old covenant, some knew the Lord, but some did not. Now recognize what I just said. In the old covenant, some knew the Lord, but some did not. Right. Consider Eli, Eli's sons. First Samuel 2.12 says they didn't know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. And, and some in the reform camp might say, well, they should have been cut off, right? That they were wicked, that they, they should have followed uh, the covenantal laws. Well, fair enough. But what about Samuel? First Samuel 3.7 says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Would any reformed person want to say that Samuel wasn't rightly a member of the people of God, though he did not yet know the Lord? Well, this is what makes, I believe, the new covenant better. All know the Lord. There are no Eli's or Samuel's that don't know the Lord in the new covenant. The old covenant, however, rightly had both. The Paedo-Baptist argument here, I believe, of all stripes, so take all of them in, takes the teeth out of the author's argument for covenantal superiority. Now, I understand why they must do this, the, the view of infant baptism. Nice. I, I understand that. But I think it would be better to remove that faulty presupposition, and, and we wouldn't have the problem we have here. If that, the, go ahead. If you want to add something before I go to why I believe the preachers and teachers argument is invalid, but no, well, that's actually I was just about to say. Then what about pastors and teachers? And uh, you know, it 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 does. We're still preaching repent and be baptized, right? So of course, I, I feel like Tyler sees this as the eschato- eschatological fulfillment and not the fulfillment now. Yeah, I, I think that's just a misunderstanding of what's being said. Uh, what's being said here in Hebrews and Jeremiah to know the Lord. What, what does it mean when it says they shall all know me? Um, it, that is union with Christ, regenerated by the spirit, taught by God. Right. These covenant members, uh, according to the new covenant, right, it gives the terms of what the new covenant is. They all have the laws put in their minds. God writes them on their hearts. God remembers their sins no more. And so, again, this is about the superiority of the new covenant, having all saved members, while the old covenant had those that knew the Lord and those that did not. Just because, think about this, just because they have their sins forgiven, excuse me, we have our sins forgiven and know the Lord, that doesn't mean we don't need preachers and teachers. Think about the silliness of that claim. Let me just give you an example here. Um, Does being a Christian mean one doesn't need a preacher or teacher? Just because I know the Lord, do I not now need a preacher or a teacher? I would say no. I would say that these are positively instituted offices for the church of Christ, for believers that know the Lord. When this is saying that no one will have to say to their brother or no one will have to say to their neighbor, know the Lord for they shall all know me. This is the – not everyone on the planet is in the new covenant. This is talking about new covenant members. What are the marks of a new covenant person? If you join a club, if you join – uh, uh, you sign terms of agreement or something. You say, I am this, right? I'm a Boy Scout. Well, I can tell you what Boy Scouts are because there are things that make a Boy Scout a Boy Scout. And there's things that if you don't, if you're not these things, you're not a Boy Scout, right? Well, just because I go and evangelize the world or, or just because the people sitting in the pews, some are believers and some are not, I would say that means some are new covenant members and some are not. What's the difference between a new covenant member and someone that's not? They don't know the Lord. They do know the Lord. You see what I'm saying? These are marks of new covenant membership. Tyler, I believe, and other Presbyterians are conflating church members with new covenant members. I yes. think that's the problem. Yeah, well, that's exactly what's been told to me. And this comes from the emotional argument of, well, there are kids and there are there are 
friends and this, that, and the other. And if they're participating in the church, well, they got to be in the covenant. But the thing is, I can't consistently read Jeremiah and Hebrews and believe that the new covenant is nothing less than union with Christ and forgiveness of sins. I, that's a hundred. I, I completely agree. And and I would I would point out that though that was promised under other covenants, it was not promised promised by those covenants. And that is an extremely important distinction. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant promised that this would happen. Promised that he God says, I will circumcise your heart. The Mosaic covenant did not circumcise anyone's heart. Nope. That covenant, the mediator of that covenant didn't do it, right? Couldn't do it. The mediator of the new covenant can, does, and did through those types and shadows. Right. And I've, I've, I, I listened to a um, an entire lecture series by Ligon Duncan on mm-hmm. covenant theology. And I think he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And I think he, he spells it out very clearly. I mean, he is a Pado-Baptist covenant Presbyterian guy. But it's weird to me that we're saying that somehow Christ was the substance of the Noahic covenant and and the Davidic covenant. Like when I say substance, I mean like the actual sacrifice and forgiveness of sins. I don't see that in any of those. I do see them paving the way towards it, though. Yes, the, it's so crazy because if if he taught a class on types and shadows um, or something like that. I think that often if, if we take out this context, th- this this thing we're talking about, we all recognize that uh, that a sign is not the thing signified. Tyler talked about that. Yeah. But a type also is not the thing it points to. A shadow is not the actual substance, right? When you see the shadow of a person, you don't go, there's the person, right? When you see a sign of Mount Everest, you don't go to the sign and go, oh, look at Mount Everest. It's massive, right? You look beyond the sign. You look beyond the type. You look beyond – the shadow. And I think what's happening here when you say that the substance of circumcision is Christ, <laughs> yeah. that sounds weird, right? Yeah. No, you say circumcision pointed to uh, regeneration, pointed to Christ, right? Pointed to the circumcision made without hands. Um, and I think I think that when we talk about that in this context, I think that's when we start messing up typology, personally. No, I, I, I get you. Um, what, what I... Now, I was immensely educated by Ligon Duncan and seeing the continuity between the covenants and how we actually see the gospel authors uh, showing the fulfillments of every single one of them in Christ. Mm-hmm. But what he extrapolated from that was that it was all one covenant of grace. And I – again, just opinion. I just don't think that's what Matthew is saying when, when he talks about uh, the Davidic king and things of that sort. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, David wasn't Christ. David pointed to Christ. Right. And by his pointing to Christ, David preached Christ. Yes. So I think where my heartstrings get pulled, and I'm not a dad, and uh, by the way, your your little girl is adorable. Derek sent – Derek posted a video on Facebook. Um, if you're not friends with him or anything, and he's going uh, (laughs) – he's holding his little girl, and he goes – What's a mommy say? And she goes, no, no, no. And he goes, well, what's daddy say? And she goes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I know as a father, you love your child and you want nothing but the blood of Christ, the sanctifying, uh, justifying 
union with Christ for that little girl, right? Amen. Okay. All day long. Yes, that's that's our that's our daily prayer is that God would uh, would regenerate her, draw him to herself, draw her to Himself. And I know, I would imagine, you are teaching her what she can understand because you you teach you train your child up in the way of the Lord. But I don't think you're assuming she has union with Christ. Am I correct? Absolutely not. No, I do not assume that um, because I'm not told to. So what's hard is by everything we've just laid out with our our beliefs in the new covenant, and I'm willing to say are because I do agree with you about the new covenant, um, with with how the new covenant is very um, uh, strict in its definitions of who's in and who's not. Would you agree with me that we basically just excluded children that do not have that it, it, any unbelieving person we just excluded, correct? Yes, I would say that um, that we are given prescriptions that do not allow us to put someone in a covenant that uh, we have no reason. I, I would say it this way. I, I want to make sure I'm using my words correctly because our our confession, the Baptist confession, followed the Westminster and the Savoy in its language um, uh, on. I'm assuming you're you're heading the direction of children that die in infancy. Yes. Um, so. I want to make sure that what what I am saying is that we have positive prescriptions for how we uh, administer baptism, the Lord's Supper, and uh, those tell us that we are to do our best to baptize those. We give the sign to those that are showing the thing signified, which is regeneration, union with Christ. We don't intentionally apply the sign to anyone that doesn't show the thing signified. And that would be unbelievers. That would be uh, infants, children. Uh, we wouldn't give the sign to to anyone. Well, I, I'm not going to plop the sign of Mount Everest uh, at the hole that was put in uh, in the front of my yard because they're changing our pipes. Right. That crater's not Mount Everest. Or I'm sorry. Um, sorry. I, t- I said Mount Everest. I actually meant um, what am I thinking of? The. Uh, Anyway, okay, I got uh, the ant mound <laughs> outside. I, I'm totally losing my mind here. Um, I would, I wouldn't plop a sign outside of the big hill outside of my house and say that's Mount Everest, because that's not the thing signified. So yes, that 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 would be how I would put it, very unclearly. <laughs> so now Tyler didn't say this on the program, but I have had Pato Baptist say this to me, and and including including Tyler personally. So, and he said, well. If children can't believe they're excluded from the new covenant, there's there's no hope for them, then they're all damned to hell. And I pretty much and and this is going to shock listeners here. Get ready for James White, you know, harsh Calvinism 101. I say so be it, because either God has the same freedom in salvation of the infant as he does the adult or the 15 year old or whoever, or he doesn't. And it's not up to me to try to make a way to get them into heaven through a sacrament. I feel yeah. that's inherently Roman Catholic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I would add one thing is that we are not by baptism putting anyone in the new covenant. We are recognizing no. the signs of a new covenant member. And so if God wants to put someone in the new covenant and I falsely do not recognize that that person's in the new covenant, guess what? They're in the new covenant. Because I don't put people in – the new covenant is an extension of election. It's an extension of the covenant of redemption made between the members of the Trinity. Um, And so that is the determination of who will be in the new covenant, not uh, my uh, baptizing them. So I I would want to make that clear. 
Right, and I want to make it clear, too, we're not baptismal regeneration guys or anything like that, um, but you'll hear a paedo-baptist say, well, you know, baptism is the front door to the covenant, and it's like, I don't—I thought Christ was. <laughs> baptism Baptism is the recognition of the covenant. I, I do yeah. not believe baptism is the front door. So I am curious, because you are a dad with a, with a, a, small, a small child, what is your view, or, or do you just leave it to God in total, of— of of the of the unborn or the the child that dies in infancy or God forbid the the mentally challenged person what I leave that to the graces of God and the judge of all the earth um, but I know some people try to make special doctrines out of it do you do you have a particular view or what where where do you go with that I do uh, so I believe that we serve a sovereign God that acts according to His divine prerogative uh, God is free to save anyone He wants and uh, I, I I think it's important to quote our confessions here. Um, I'll, I'll quote it from the Westminster uh, word for word here. It says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Now, what this doesn't answer is the question of who are the elect infants? All, right. some, none, right? I mean, Tyler said, and I agree, the secret things belong to the Lord. Now, I, I would tell you kind of an interesting little story here. Uh, it's very short, but I had a Lutheran friend that um, confessing that this is his belief, and it's a Lutheran belief. It, uh, baptism always hits its mark is how he would often put it. And what he meant was that um, he believed that baptism and the word are the channels through which regeneration take place. Right? They're the pipelines of grace. Right. So because baptism always hits its mark, he, he said – and I'll, I'll quote him here. He said, he said he would sprinkle hospital toilet water on a dying infant. And so, wow, that was his view, right? And, and some reform people believe, um, as a, a Tyler May, I, I, I don't want to speak for him, but um, that they have a sure hope for the infants, and of course those incapable of being outwardly called, of at least one believing parent, a sure hope for them, while they hold out just simple zero. Or, yeah. or some might say zero, but I know that some would say God, you know, God, maybe God will save them uh, for other people. Right. And I think all of these views personally are seriously flawed. Um, and, and I think that they really show uh, what they really show, I believe, is the tension that this presents with other parts of Scripture. I simply affirm, if you want to know just a nut nutshell, my view uh, that, that I confirm the confession without unnecessarily adding to nor taking away from it, because I believe that's how Scripture affirms uh, of this. No more, no less. Yeah. Uh, if, if an infant's elect, then all of those things are true. If they're not, they're not. And they might they might all be elect. They might. None of them might be elect. Some of them might. Right. I don't know. That's it's, up to God. It's such – we just don't really have any particular uh, detailed revelation on it. What we do have extreme revelation on is the merciful and just God, and I think we have to leave it to that. Amen. And, and – Again, I, I'm not accusing uh, my Pado baptist friends of, of baptismal regeneration, but sometimes it feels like they speak out of both sides of their mouth with it because it feels like they do assume regeneration and that, well, the kid will be okay. He was a covenant kid. It Really? I – you know, but – Yeah, I find I, it problematic. I, yeah. yeah. I, also so, find, I also find it problematic to make a special plea like a lot of Baptists will for an age of accountability. I, 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 I What's that? I think it's silly too. Yes. Yeah, I th I mean, uh, John MacArthur wrote a book. I think he wrote one of the more convincing books for a lot of people 
on this issue. And it's one of those things, again, it's kind of like the household argument where it looks like there's a whole bunch of scriptures that if you put them together sort of adds up to this age of accountability. But if you start just going one by one, you go, well, that definitely doesn't teach it. Neither does that. Nope, not there either. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would just that. Yeah, I want to make sure I'm not. No one's taken my view to mean that. Well, yeah, and the thing is, um, James White has an analogy, and I think the book The Potter's Freedom is, you know, when you have a manual on a like like a car. Okay, and you want to learn about your headlights. Well, you go to the headlight section and you read exactly how they work, how to change the bulbs, right? But yeah. in, in inadvertently, you might read about your headlights in the blinker section, uh, the the turn signal section. But that isn't the detailed view of how the headlights are actually working and that's that's a probably a butchered version of what he's trying to say but what i'm trying to say is we go to scripture for where we know it's talking about something like the atonement and election and we don't go to this over here where it's like oh well uh noah was a was a righteous man in the sight of god and think he was justified like think he was like uh, uh justified and perfect without any kind of um um grace from god does that make sense mm-hmm. because the, the provisionist will say well Noah was a good man and he he you know there's no election there or anything like that and there's and it's like well that's that's not the kind of righteousness we're talking about so <laughs> false equivalencies of words so again i i think to sum up me and derek's position is all elect infants will be with the lord but we're not saying all infants are elect we don't know so finally, since we're on that somber note, let's get into apostasy. <laughs> Many of our Pado-Baptist friends say that the apostasy passages are best viewed in light of a covenant community. I'll be honest, I think they got a good argument here. So I, I'd like to get uh, some of your some of your views on uh, maybe Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 6 and things like that, uh, because – Tyler and, and others have said, well, there's got to be something to apostatize from. There's got to be something to fall away from. It can't just be completely hypothetical because the warnings must be real. Uh, you know, For instance, in Hebrews uh, 10, uh, Hebrews 10.28 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So they say this is a covenant judgment. This is trampling the blood of the Son of God. You're in the covenant. You're profaning the blood that you were sanctified with. But that's, to me, a problem as well because then we're – then we got election issues. Then we sound more Lutheran than we do um, Reformed Baptist or Reformed uh, Pato Baptist. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. I do. I definitely do. Yeah, I, um, I, I do find it interesting that often the text that uh, that my Reformed Pato Baptist brothers will go to uh, to support this mixed covenant view of this idea of apostatizing from the new covenant uh, because they didn't have the substance; they simply had the administration. I find it interesting that these exact same texts are the texts that those that believe you can lose your salvation go to. Exactly. Um, just, just to point that out right away. But that doesn't mean they're wrong, right? Maybe they just have a better argument. 
Well, if we if we start with Hebrews 10, um, I will use a paedo-baptist argument uh, for why I think Hebrews 10 is not saying what uh, some initially think it does. If you look at verse 29, which I think is uh, the one that for our covenantal view is the most important, it says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? I think what, I think what they're saying there. Um, is that what Tyler maybe is saying, I'm not sure, but what certainly a lot of them are, is that they're profaning the blood of the covenant by which they themselves are sanctified. So the unbelieving spouse, let's use him as, as an example, right? He's in the covenant community, and so he is now trampling underfoot the Son of God, and he is uh, the blood by which he himself was uh, sanctified uh, is is uh, what he's profaning, Right. That's the way the argument's presented. Am I right? Are you hearing that the same way, Isaiah? Yes, I, I'm okay. understanding that one can be in the covenant but not be elect, yet suffer covenantal punishment because they were in the covenant. That's what I've understood. Tyler, okay. when you're listening to this, correct me, dude, but that's what I got. Yes. So I would say in this text, I think that uh, John Owen presents a wonderful view. You can go read it yourself in his massive Hebrews commentary. I'll really be interested. I know Tyler's going through Hebrews when he gets to this text to see if he finds it convincing or not. Um, But he points out that when it says the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, that the immediate antecedent is the son of God. Yeah. And so if you if you consider turn over, I know you got your Bible there, but at John 17, uh, 19, you have this interesting little comment where Christ says, and for their sake, I uh, consecrate myself is what the ESV says, but it sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Um, so, so what we have here is we have uh, that the blood of Christ set Christ apart. His blood set himself apart. And so we're, if we take that view, no problem anymore. And let me, let me say this. Let's say it could mean either one, right, is what, what might be brought up. I believe that the context of Hebrews 10 supports this view far better, as does John Owen, far better than the idea of a mixed covenant. Because go back to Hebrews uh, 10.10. It says, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This once for all uh, um, uh, sacrifice or or offering. Hebrews 10.14. For by a, a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If the Hebrew author is saying that this sanctification, this blood of the covenant is for uh, non-believers, the non-elect, I think you have a real problem with the Hebrew author having consistency within uh, basically the same uh, the same couple of paragraphs. Yeah. And the Arminians like, dude, your system just fell apart because yeah. I mean, in, in, in an Arminian's defense, they were like, how can they have the blood if it's not? really applied to them but it is but it's not it doesn't make any sense and they're going to say well my view works because they believe you can be united to christ yet be severed yeah definitely on on limited atonement this would be this would be a go-to verse for sure mm-hmm. uh, to to say the blood absolutely did something for the non-elect i mean they were you know they were they were set apart by this blood i think jordan so, cooper has made that argument actually i think that would make sense it would be a good lutheran argument for uh for universal atonement yeah. Uh, so here it is. OK, so in Hebrews six, mm-hmm. we get uh, it, the ESV uh, nicely calls this a warning against apostasy. This is Hebrews six. Therefore, Four. let us leave the Im- elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity and not laying again on a foundation of repentance 
not laying again on a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible, here's the catch, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So this is hard for everybody, I think. Um, Well, not the Arminian, but for any (laughs) Calvinistic person, this is hard. But I think I've kind of understood this, that in in certain paedo-baptist circles, you can say, well, look, this is a covenant person. They've shared in the Holy Spirit, been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, but they fell away from the covenant, but not from election. What do you think's going on here? Well, I, I would say, number one, this isn't saying anything about uh, the covenant uh, specifically as far as, um, you know, that argument is definitely theology forced on this text. We all do that. But I want to point that out right away because reformed uh, paedo-baptists have different answers to this question as well. R.C. Sproul's answer is not the normal answer for other people where he sees this as this like, hypothetical thing, right? Where, you know, if this happened, right, something like that, that's not the normal case. Um, I, I, you know, it, it, I don't, I don't remember if Tyler used this text, but um, uh, I know that some, some paedo-baptists would go to this text and that's what they would say. I think Arminians even have a problem with this text because the, when you say it's impossible to restore them to repentance, I think they would go, well, maybe, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, really, it's impossible. I don't know. God loves everyone, um, you know, in, in this way that he would never do that. Um, some would say that, of course, and I, I don't want to. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I do think one general principle that I hold to that I don't believe is unique to Baptist theology is that we. I think we have to remember that warning texts ha- serve a couple of purposes. They um, they actually they cause the elect to flee to Christ. They mm-hmm. cause the non-elect to flee from Christ. And to picture this, think of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is not to expel people. Uh, I truly believe the purpose of church discipline is to restore people to repentance. Um, and so uh, church discipline is meant to expose the goats and, and, and expose the sheep. Uh, and so it will draw it will draw the sheep in. It will push the goats out. Um, so churches that don't practice church discipline, by the way, are doing a very big disservice to the church. But anyway, totally agree. Um, so in this text, I think that if we if we again start from the end and work our way back, look at verse nine. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Mm-hmm. I don't I believe what this is talking about. I My, my personal view to give you uh, of this text is this is talking about. Um, the member, uh, church, people that are close to the church, people that are take, partaking of the Lord's Supper, people that have likely been baptized, people like Bart Ehrman <laughs> that yeah. know, know these things, have, know benefited, yes, have, be- <laughs> have benefited from spiritual enlightenment, right? They, like, they've benefited from all these things, that they have been partakers, but when they fall away, I believe this is a warning that, though, that you must be very careful because uh, Calvin talked about those receiving harsher judgment that have received more uh, that have received more light. The more light, the more judgment. Right. Um, that that is what this is speaking about. Um, that's my personal belief of this text. But I'll tell you what, find 10 people that explain their view on this text and you'll probably get 12 answers. 
Yeah, I'm just kidding. That that's obviously no, hyperbole. I mean, but there no, are really, answers to this text. I don't think it. I think the worst answer to this text is that you have people that are getting all of this stuff that are actually in the covenant. The the view of Hebrews 10, I believe, impl- uh, imported into this text is, in my opinion, one of the worst views, one of the worst ways to handle this text. Because you are, again, you, you're conceding precious uh, points of Calvinism when you do that. Yeah. Because uh, anyway, that that's my that, that's definitely I don't think it's a very good apologetic um, uh, view for this text. Yeah. And because it's driving me crazy in my head when I was talking about um, people using arguments from Scripture to define other topics that that certain Scripture wasn't defining, I totally misspoke. So uh, what I was arguing against was you'll often hear total depravity isn't a thing because um, uh, Cornel- uh, was it Cornelius uh, or? Oh, yeah, he was a God uh, God fear. God fear. Okay. Yes. You'll hear that kind of stuff. And that's equated with um, like uh, elected love or, you know, they don't believe in elected love, but uh, that's equivalent with loving God uh, in a salvific way without his intervention. Yeah, he uh, Leighton Flowers even talks about how Cornelius, he didn't have any, you know, divine any. It was all general revelation. And it's like, Anyway, that that is historically very weak argument. It's very unlikely. But anyway, yeah. Because we we believe we love the Lord because the Lord loved us. He elected us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we know that everyone hates the Lord that has not been regenerated. Uh, They can say they're ecumenical and, oh, you know, all roads lead to heaven, but they don't love the triune God of Scripture. They hate Mm him. So – to me, those doctrines are precious, just like you were saying, and we can't compromise them just because a passage is kind of tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, you, and that it's so interesting. If you look at the analogy given in verse seven and eight, it's talking about a land that is receiving the rain, right? This land is receiving the rain, yet it doesn't produce fruit. There's nothing that comes from it, right? And so I think what this is talking about is. Um, you know, good, good good soil that receives the rain and bad soil that receives the rain. One grows, one doesn't, right? But it's the same rain. These right. are people that are receiving, they're, they're tasting, you know, they're having the word preached to them, right? They're tasting the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. That's why well, we have eschatology breaking into history in the church. So you better believe that these people and the, the, the Hebrew author is talking about, but they're falling away from that. They're not falling away from being covenant members. I, that, that's where I just that's where I think it just goes too far. I, I, I don't I, I think it's a bad apologetic. Um, and, and, and that's why I don't believe all Reformed paedobaptists even hold that view on this text. I'm sure they don't. Um, it's it's weird because I feel like and I and I, I know Tyler is completely against this. This is not me describing Tyler's view, but I feel like more of the Pado Baptist I've had interaction with, aside from him, hold really federal visionist kind of arguments for these kind of things. Oh, that's uh, what happens when you are listening to them all the time. <laughs> right. And it's it's like because you're like, oh well, Doug Wilson said that. And you're like yeah. and, and I know that it's like, well, Doug Wilson's not federal vision anymore. Yeah, but if he's still saying the same stupid things, it's still federal vision. I, yeah, and you might, you might also extend that to people that are defending his views. Um, I, I would even – I don't want to I don't want to start a, a war or anything, but I would even say the same thing about Piper when he says similar things uh, to the way that Doug Wilson says it. And then it's not like this person doesn't say that, but they go, well, John Piper's view is actually just fine. There's nothing actually wrong with it. I think that – I think there's some things that have been imported into 
certain reform circles that I think are, I, I agree with you completely. I think it, um, that, yeah, it's a, it's poisoning the well a little bit personally. It's, a, it's always heartbreaking to me to have a hero, you know, a modern theologian hero say something really stupid. Um, just, I'm just being blunt. Like, yeah. uh, I'll just be honest when John Piper came out, uh, weeks and weeks ago, basically saying it's okay to vote for Joe Biden. I was stunned and disheartened. And again, I'm not a theonomy guy or anything like that, but it felt so, I just couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I hear it is. It's sad. Um, I agree. But, uh, and then, and then you got the guys on the other end of the spectrum who were saying, you know, we need to have another American revolution. And you're like, well, (laughs) hold on. Uh, so I don't mean to drift into theonomy, but it is kind of on my mind lately. Sure. But I have I have really enjoyed this discussion with you, Derek, and I hope you've enjoyed it with me. I have. I have very much. I appreciate this. And uh, I hope uh, anything that was I, I want to reiterate. I, Tyler is uh, I, I told you this privately, but I'll, I, I want to say it publicly. I believe he's a gift to the church. He's a he's a laborer um, in God's kingdom. And um, I'm very grateful for him. I've disagreed with him many, many times, and I'm sure I will in the future. Um, but uh, I really I think very highly of Tyler love my presbyterian and reformed brothers so uh i just disagree Absolutely. on certain things yeah. yes and that's the thing about this debate guys it's definitely in-house and we as you know i, I guess i'll call myself a reformed baptist for the sake of this conversation we as reformed baptists we have way more in common with our presbyterian friends than we do uh our um, um what is the other baptist position a southern our typical southern baptist friends way more oh, yeah. in common Way more oh. in common. Reformed uh, Presbyterians are the closest kin I have to, uh, outside of um, Reformed Baptists, so my, not not even close. Yeah, and and to reiterate what Derek just said, Tyler is a dear brother of mine. He uh, he counsels me. I call him when I'm I need to talk to somebody who is pastoral. Uh, he's a wonderful. Uh, man, he's a, a wonderful uh, expositor of scripture, and I've learned a lot from him. And even if we disagree, he gave me a lot to think about and a lot to chew on, and I do appreciate that about him. Derek, do you have any final closing thoughts for our uh, listeners about maybe some books to read on Baptist Covenant theology or just anything to part ways here? Uh, no, I would say listen to people that are better at articulating this than I am. Uh, as I said before, you know, Sam Renahan's uh, book, Mystery of Christ. Um, I don't remember how the, the subheading exactly, but it's uh, his, uh, kingdom. Yeah, I, I can't remember. The book is amazing. It is. It, I Almost every person I know that's read it has said that they believe it is the best book on covenant theology written, which is interesting considering all the books out there. Yeah. Um, but it's not it's not polemical. It's just a positive presentation of the covenant theology. It's so funny. I got, I got the book. I'm often known by people that know me as someone that finds a fault in everything I read or listen to. Um, it's, it's my spiritual gift, I guess. Mm, I, um, <laughs> I, I could already see that. And I don't, I barely know. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tend to see the negative, uh, in things, but, uh, it's so funny when I got this book, I told a dear friend of mine, I want to find something I disagree with because I don't want to read this book as a, as a fanboy. Okay. Uh, I, I've read it multiple times and I'm not able to find something that I don't like. I don't like that. I don't think is biblical. Um, and so it is a wonderful book. There is something wrong in it. I will find it eventually. Um, but I, I do recommend that book very highly. And I would also say there, James, I've learned more overall as far as theology 
um, in general, just apologetics, just the way that uh, learning how to read my Bible, things like that from James White. Yeah. On this issue, I would say the person that I've learned the most from and am most indebted to is Brandon Adams. I know him. And, I, mean, I don't know him, but I know of him. Yeah. So his website, uh, he, so he's the guy that actually the admin for 69 and federalism, but right. I believe even more useful is his, uh, it's contrast, the number two dot wordpress.com it's organized, um, uh, so well, there is so much there. He is not uh, very friendly for people that want short, uh, short statements and things like that. He is just someone that if you want to dig into this, if you really want to mind covenant theology, this guy has been doing it for a long time. Uh, and he does it very well, I believe. So I just I I, I want to make sure I give people credit uh, that that have influenced me and helped me to understand this. And Sam Renahan and uh, Brandon Adams have I mean are just absolutely wonderful on this. So well, that's that's great. Well, Derek, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, Tyler, I know you're going to be listening to this. I can't wait to have you back on to keep this uh, this discussion going. And um, till next time, everyone. It depends on how you look at it. 